Hey everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and tonight in our 33rd session, well, we're going to talk about Lothlorien, we're going to talk about the Lady Galadriel, we're going to talk about her husband, remind me of his name, and we're going to talk a lot about temptation. Before we get to all of that, we're going to talk first about the elves, and before we get to that, we're going to raise a glass. Because it is traditional on January 3rd every year for Tolkien fans all over the world to raise their glasses in a simple toast to the professor, January 3rd being, of course, Professor Tolkien's birthday. This is not, as you may know, January 3rd. But today is the 80th anniversary of the publication of The Hobbit. And tomorrow, as if that wasn't cause enough for celebration, tomorrow is Bilbo and Frodo's shared birthday. So I hope that you will join me to the professor. I can think of no better way of starting tonight's session. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to begin with a deep dive into the elves. This is going to be a little heady, a little complicated, but I've received probably more questions about this of late than I have any other topic except the Balrog, which we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. Um, let me show you the slide that I have prepared, this, this baffling and bewildering slide that I have prepared, and then we're going to talk a little about the different tribes of elves. Tribes is the word that I have settled upon. Let me share that with you. There we go. And let's get into our, our understanding here. So the story of the waking of the elves doesn't really begin with the elves. Rather, it begins with the Valar, with the, the most powerful of the Ainur, the angelic-like beings who came into the world upon the moment of its creation. Specifically, we begin with Melkor, our, you know, not to kind of draw too tightly the analogy here, but our Satan figure. Melkor is the great antagonist. Melkor is the great shadow. He is the big bad of Tolkien's Legendarium. He is the one who tries to take over the Ainulindale as the world is being sung into existence uh, way back at the beginning of the Silmarillion, and then he causes just a lot of trouble. Um, Specifically, we're going to begin with his destruction of the lamps of Arda. This is too complicated a story for us to get into. Suffice it to say that way back in the distant past, way back in, in the dim mists of prehistory, he unleashes upon the world a cataclysmic event, an, an almost apocalyptic event. He tears apart the surface of Arda. There is fire and brimstone and terrible things happen for a long while. And when this happens... The Valar retreat to Valinor. They retreat to the Undying Lands, and they stay there, and they kind of yield Middle-earth to Melkor, who then begins to corrupt the various beasts of Middle-earth. He begins to corrupt the flora and the fauna, kind of creating his, his awful host of evil from his shadowy fortress of Udun. And the Valar are terrified at this point. They're terrified that Melkor's actions have somehow broken the path of history. They're somehow, you know, um, that, that he has, has torn asunder the song, that he has prevented the, the coming into being of all that was foretold in the Song of the Ainulindale. Specifically, that he has prevented the coming of the children of Iluvatar, for whom the Valar are waiting impatiently. Not everyone is impatient as Aule, of course, who at this point is creating the dwarves quite busily, but, but you know, impatiently nonetheless. But wake the elves did, years and years later, and they awoke, to everyone's eventual surprise and consternation, in Middle-earth. They arose actually in the far east of Middle-earth, in the uh, shores of Kuivianen. Kuivianen? I, I think that's the pronunciation I'm going to go with there. Um, in the far east of Middle-earth. Six elves awoke first, and they awoke in three pairs. Imin and his wife Iminye, 
Tata and his wife Tatie and Enel and Enelie. Now, it may seem weird that these husband and wife pairings among the elves had basically the same name, but that is, of course, because these words simply mean first, second, and third. So Imin and Iminye are the first man and first woman, and Tata and Tatie are the second man and second woman, Enel and Enelie, the third man and third woman. These are the fathers and the mothers of the three tribes of elves. You can see here that they they have kind of initial tribal identifications, the Minyar, the Tatyar, and the Nelyar. Together, they are the Quendi. The Quendi is the name that the elves give to themselves, those who speak with voices, because they are, of course, the only beings who can speak. And they can't even initially speak. When they first wake, they can only sing, but they quickly discover language as they move forth. These six elves move forth around the shores of, uh, of Kuivienen to, to discover other elves. And to discover other elves, they do. They recruit them into their tribe. Emin and Eminye find and recruit 12 more elves. Tata and Tatie find 54 elves. Enel and Enelia find 72. All in all, therefore, 144 elves. That's our initial population of elves split into these three tribes, the Minyar, the Tatyar, and the Nalyar. So the elves are living pretty happily at this point under the stars. Everything's pretty good under the stars because the sun and the moon as yet have not been created and life is is actually decent. But because they're in Middle-earth and the Valar have retreated to Valinor, they are discovered first by Melkor, who is, as I say, busy creating his his awful demonic host from the, the, the fortress of Udun. So he goes to the elves and frightens them. He basically uh, misleads them. He manipulates them into believing that the, the, um, the Valar are going to be their enemies. He also, according to some versions of the Legendarium, steals away a number of the elves at this point and begins the corruptive process that will turn them into orcs. This is one of the points at which the Legendarium is slightly unclear. Sometimes he takes the elves now, sometimes he takes the elves much later, and sometimes he doesn't take the elves at all. Sometimes the orcs come from another place. As I've discussed before, Tolkien never really pinned down the origin story of, of the orcs. So eventually, the elves are found by Orome, the huntsman of the Valar, as he's traveling through Middle-earth, and he hangs out with them for a while, just thrilled that the children of Iluvatar have finally arrived. As was foretold, here they are, the Eldar, the eldest children of Iluvatar. This is pretty great. He returns to Valinor and discusses his discovery with the other Valar, who decide shortly thereafter that for the good of the elves, they have to put a stop to Melkor's evil ways. It's no longer okay that they basically ceded control and dominion of Middle-earth to Melkor. Thus begins the War for the Sake of the Elves, which is maybe the best title of any of the wars of, in, in Tolkien's uh, Legendarium. The Valar contend with the hosts of Melkor, driving him back to Udun and besieging it for many long years until they can finally capture and chain him. At this point, Orome comes to the elves and says, Hey! Everything's pretty good now, but you should come and check out Amon. You should come and check out Valinor. You should come be with us. You know, you are, you were foretold. You are pretty great. You are the children of Iluvatar. Hey, we're the representatives of Iluvatar. This is so great. Come with us. So the elves decide to send emissaries, one from each tribe. And by this point, the tribes have kind of taken on a stronger identification. They are no longer just the first, second, and third tribes. Now they are the Vanyar. So Emin and Eminye, their people, fewest in number, 
give rise to the, the tribe of the Vanyar, the fair elves. Tata and Tatie, the second tribe of elves, give rise to the Noldor, those with knowledge. And then Enel and Enelie give rise to the Teleri, which translates as those who came last. Uh, bronze, the bronze metal elves is basically what that translates to. So Orome goes to the elves and says, you should all come to Valinor. It's pretty great. You wouldn't believe it. We've got like a, a water park and there's like a Starbucks on every corner. You should definitely come and check it out. And some of the elves say, um, actually, no, no, thank you. No, I don't think that we will. And those elves are called the Avari, the unwilling. And as you can see from this very crude and rustic diagram that I've presented for you, the Avari come from the, uh, from the, the Tatiar and the Naliar. They, they basically come from the Noldor and the Teleri. All of the Vanyar go to Valinor because they are so few in number and, and are perhaps the, the fairest of all the elves. So they all go to Valinor. The others don't so much. So all of the Vanyar and the Noldor agree to go on the journey to Amman and, and make it there basically without incident. And they become the Calaquendi, the elves of the light. Half of the Teleri and all of the Avari do not go to Valinor, and they become the Moriquendi, the elves of the dark. That is to say that they have never seen the light of Valinor. That is where Moriquendi comes from. But some of them do undertake the Great Journey. They do a Great Journey, capital G, capital J, Great Journey. They do undertake the Great Journey to Valinor, but they get distracted along the way, and people go missing, and there's, there's, there's a certain amount of drama and a certain amount of tension, and, and also they just really like Beleriand, so they choose to stay in Beleriand, and they become the Sindar. They are the Grey Elves. They they did undertake the journey, but didn't see it through to its completion. So these are our major kind of, 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 of types of elves, I suppose. In, in the passages of the Lord of the Rings, you're going to see reference to the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Teleri. So those are the first, second, and third tribes. The Fair, those with knowledge, and those who came last. Those are the main tribes. Then our primary distinction is the Calaquendi and the Moriquendi. Those who saw the light of Valinor and those who didn't. And of course, it is implicit within the frame of the Lord of the Rings that the, Cal the Calaquendi saw the light of Valinor and then returned. They came back to Middle-earth at some point. The Moriquendi never went to Valinor in the first place. The Sindar started to go to Valinor and instead set up, uh, set up their own civilizations in and around Beleriand. And there is, of course, a huge amount of, of intermarrying between the different tribes of elves. Everyone has a very complicated uh, personal history. Galadriel, who we'll meet today, is of the Noldor. Celeborn is a Sindarin elf descended of the Teleri, as is uh, Legolas, though Legolas is, of course, much younger than, than Celeborn. Um, this is incredibly complicated. I know that it's going to be tough to keep this straight, but we're going to get these names thrown at us from time to time, and the important distinction, I suppose, is the Moriquendi and the Calaquendi, right? That, that's the important distinction. To understand primarily that the, the Moriquendi, the dark elves, are not dark in the D&D sense. These are not, you know, subterranean drow. These are simply elves who have never been to Valinor. They are no worse than the Calaquendi. They are, they are not inherently evil. They are not, you know, inherently corrupt. None of the, uh, nothing of that sort. They are just elves who have never been to Valinor. But the elves who have been to Valinor, well, they are a breed apart. We talked about Glorfindel back when we were discussing the, uh, the, the passage of the book that, that occurs in and around Rivendell and, and what it is that makes Glorfindel so special. Well, what it is that makes Glorfindel so special, the light that shines within Glorfindel is the light of Valinor. That is, that is what he carries with him because he is of the Calaquendi. Hopefully that will make it pretty clear. Yes, I know it's, it's all terribly complicated, but here we are. This is, this is what we have to deal with here. Um, 
<laughs> okay, I'm just checking the, the question box here, and we have a uh, we have one question already that I think I'll get to later. That'll be just fine. You can, of course, use the question box if you have any specific questions that you'd like me to address as we're moving forward in tonight's session. So that's like a quick gloss of the history of the elves. That's not all of it, though, because specifically tonight we're going to be talking about Lothlorien. We're going to be talking about Cadus uh, Galathon, and we're going to be talking about Galadriel and, and Caliborn. And, you know, it's interesting talking about these chapters of the book, because Galadriel is a fan favorite. Let's not, you know, pretend naivete here. Galadriel is absolutely a fan favorite, and Galadriel is, in some ways, absolutely representative of the the immense and glorious virtue of the elves, the elves of old, you know, Lothlorien hasn't diminished quite in the way that Rivendell has diminished. It hasn't even diminished in the way that, that, you know, Thranduil's kingdom in, in Mirkwood has diminished. This is something different. But as we study these chapters, we begin to understand that it's something worse. It's something less real. It's something less True. And we saw that a little last time as we discussed uh, Frodo's vision from the top of Karen Amroth as he's looking out upon, you know, the, the golden trees of Lothlorien. And he is saying all of these shapes seem at, seem at once fresh, as if freshly cut for his eyes and ancient, that there are colors here, the only colors that he can see, he can recognize. He knows all of them. There isn't something new here that he's never seen before, and yet it defies his ability to describe it. There is no stain upon Lothlorien, we are told. And that's a little complicated, because the history of the elves in Middle-earth, the history of the elves in Arda, the history of the elves in Tolkien's creation is not simple. It is not straightforward. I don't have time right now to go into the full-on history of the elves and what it is that they did and, and all the many adventures and battles and conflicts that they had, but it is more complicated than that. What I will point out right now is that deep in the backstory of Galadriel, we have a kind of desire for conquest. She comes to Middle-earth from Valinor because she wants to rule. And now, here she is. We'll talk a little more... Um, about that as we move through, I guess what, what I'll do to frame this first is, is to say that uh, there's this brilliant quote from Christopher Tolkien in the History of Middle-Earth books. Christopher wrote, There is no part of the history of Middle-Earth more full of problems than the story of Galadriel and Caliborn. That's a pretty strong statement. When you think about who is Tom Bombadil, when you think about, but where did the orcs come from? When you think about, but how does the Shire work? And what about the men of Bree? When you think about these complicated issues, just these complicated issues that we've already discussed, never mind, but Ents, though, and are there really giants? And all of the other questions which arise, arise from uh, Tolkien's Legendarium, it is going some to say that Galadriel and Celeborn are the most uh, complicated part of the history of Middle-earth, that there is no part of the history of Middle-earth more full of problems than the story of Galadriel and Celeborn. And honestly, a lot of that stuff was revised after The Lord of the Rings was published. So the version that we get of Galadriel and Celeborn in the appendices of The Lord of the Rings is slightly different than the kind of intimated account that we get here in these chapters. And then the version that we get in The Silmarillion later is also different. And there are different versions of all of these stories just rolling around. So I'm not going to try and be definitive about Galadriel's history. We're going to try and do what we do and pay close attention to the text that's in front of us. And we're going to begin because I have, gosh, just a, a furious number of slides tonight. Let's see how many we can get through. Um, and we begin with the coming to Karas Galathon. The sun was sinking behind the mountains and the shadows were deepening in the woods when they went on again. Their paths now went into thickets where the dusk had already gathered. Night came beneath the trees as they walked and the elves uncovered their silver lamps. 
Suddenly they came out into the open again and found themselves under a pale evening sky pricked by a few early, star- a few early stars. There was a wide, treeless space before them, running in a great circle and bending away on either hand. Beyond it was a deep fosse lost in soft shadow, but the grass upon its brink was green, as if it glowed still in the memory of the sun that had gone. Upon the further side there rose to a great height a green wall encircling a green hill, thronged with mallorn trees taller than any they had seen in all the land. Their height could not be guessed, but they stood up in the twilight like living towers. In their many-tiered branches and amidst the ever-moving leaves, countless lights were gleaming, green and gold and silver. Haldir turned toward the company. "'Welcome to Caras Galathon,' he said. "'Here is the city of the Galathrim, where dwell the Lord Celeborn and Galadriel, the Lady of Lorien. But we cannot enter here, for the gates do not look northward. We must go round to the southern side, and the way is not short, for the city is great.'" So this is our introduction to Karas Galathon, the city of trees, basically. Uh, Galathon there has the same tree root in Quenya as as Galathrim, the, the people of the trees. So it's, once again, Tolkien not exhibiting a great deal of, of originality in his naming convention, but a great deal of, of, of linguistic acuity, I suppose, is the best way that we can put it. So here again, it is magical. Yes, it is untainted. It is fresh and it is new. As we get, there was a wide treeless space before them running in a great circle and bending away on either hand. Beyond it was a deep fosse lost in soft shadow, but the grass upon its brink was green as if it glowed still in memory of the sun that had gone. It is nighttime now. The stars are coming out, but the grass still glows. There is a kind of supernatural purity to Lothlorien, which is going to be evident throughout the rest of these chapters. And it is large. We cannot enter here, as Haldir says, for the gates do not look northward. We must go around to the southern side, and the way is not short, for the city is great. It is a large city. This city was created by uh, Galadriel and Celeborn. Um, this region has pretty much always been settled by elves on either side, the western bank of the Anduin, as we are now in the eastern bank of the Anduin, as was formerly settled. Uh, it has been settled pretty much throughout recorded history. As uh, Sauron grew stronger toward the end of the Second Age, King Amdir led the elves toward the Battle of Daggerlad and, and toward the Battle of the Last Alliance, uh, where Sauron would be slain and Isildur would take the ring and so on and so forth. But a lot of the elves died. A lot of the elves were stricken and fell in the dead marshes, including King Amdir. When King Amdir died, his son Amroth, about whom we have heard much, returned and tried to rule, but his heart just wasn't in it. So, ultimately, he decides to uh, to wed the maiden Nimrodel, um, who we discussed in, in Legolas's song um, in the last session. He decides that he's going to just, just give up this Middle-earth life. He's going to return to Valinor with Nimrodel. Everything's going to be great, but as we know, Nimrodel gets lost in the mountains, or is, as I've suspected, drowned, that she falls into the river that will one day bear her name and drowns. Amroth, seeing that that his ship has been driven away from the coast by this terrible storm that has been been summoned up from the north, leaps back into the water and tries to swim for the shore, and nothing is ever heard of him again either. So Lothlorien has, again, for the second time in just a few years, lost its king. So Galadriel and Celeborn, who have come from Valinor, who have kind of, or I guess Galadriel, excuse me, has come from Valinor. They have lived for a while on the western side of the Misty Mountains. They travel through the paths of Moria. Here they are in Lothlorien. They're living quite happily. They decide they're going to take over. They're going to take the Lord and Lady title. Um, they're not going to be king and queen, even though that was the traditional monarchistic title for Lothlorien, but they are Lord and Lady. And Galadriel 
extends her power. Because as we're going to learn in tonight's reading, Galadriel wields and wears, I tried to say both of those words simultaneously, so I will settle for saying both separately, she wields and wears Nenya, one of the elven rings, the ring of water. And using the power of this ring, she creates a new Lothlorien. She summons forth the golden Malorn trees, which do not grow in Middle-earth. And we're going to get a perspective on that. After we've kind of dealt with her temptation, we're going to circle back around to look at her deeper motivation in the song that she sings in the second chapter that we're going to study tonight. So she summons forth the Malorn trees and she creates this, this elven paradise, this golden age of elven culture. And it does not diminish, and it does not dwindle, not for a thousand years, literally not until the coming of the ring bearer. From this point on, things are going to be pretty tough for Lothlorien. You know, minor spoilers for the future, I guess, though these details are presented to us only tangentially in the, the text of the Lord of the Rings. So things are about to go bad, but for a thousand years, Lothlorien has stood perfect, immaculate, stainless. And I think that we know enough now about Tolkien's worldview and about the ways in which people seek to dominate the natural world and the ways in which people live in harmony with the natural world to begin to feel a little uncomfortable about the purity of Lothlorien. That simple fact, that, that one line that we studied last time, as Frodo stands atop Karen Amroth and looks out and sees that no stain lays upon Lothlorien, that line alone should be enough to make us think, huh, really though? No stain? Because that is not generally how virtue is presented to us in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. So we're going to move through what we see from Galadriel tonight and what we expect from Galadriel in the future and see how that all shakes out. I'm just now realizing that I'm, I'm just ignoring the chat here because I've got so much to cover. Um, Heroes and Bard says, now time for the elves' favorite game, Ring of Power. What Ring of Power? Well, at least she fesses up, right? At least she demonstrates it. And it turns out that it may not be that easy to tell someone that you have a Ring of Power, as we'll see from Sam right at the end of here. Um, yes, Lothlorien, says Jackie, equals Eden. Well, yes and no, right? Because this isn't Eden. This isn't the, the pure and innocent initial creation. This isn't the world before sin came into it. This is a recreation of the garden after we have known sin. And that's a crucial point. Lothlorien itself, the, the name Lorien is taken from, you know, an, an old uh, settlement of elves in the West. She's recreating, not creating. And in so doing, she is standing in direct contrast with the story of the elves in Middle-earth. The, the long defeat, as she describes it. There is a long defeat. Yes, the elves are diminishing. They have been diminishing forever. Everyone is diminishing forever, as we discussed in the last session. That is the arc of history in Tolkien's Legendarium, but not in Lothlorien. By force of will and by the application of the Elven Ring of Power, Galadriel manages to preserve Lothlorien. And that's troublesome. We'll move into that in more greater detail. But first of all, of course, we have to meet Celeborn and Galadriel. The chamber was filled with the soft light. Its walls were green and silver and its roof of gold. Many elves were seated there. On two chairs beneath the bowl of the tree and canopied by a living bough, there sat side by side Celeborn and Galadriel. They stood up to greet their guests after the manner of elves, even those who were accounted mighty kings. Very tall they were, and the lady no less tall than the lord, and they were grave and beautiful. 
They were clad wholly in white, and the hair of the lady was of deep gold, and the hair of the Lord Caliborn was of silver, long and bright, but no sign of age was upon them, unless it were in the depths of their eyes, for these were keen as lances in the starlight, and yet profound, the wells of deep memory. Haldir led Frodo before them, and the Lord welcomed them in his own tongue. The Lady Galadriel said no word, but looked long upon his face. "'Sit now beside my chair, Frodo of the Shire,' said Caliborn. We all have come, excuse me, when all have come, we will speak together. Each of the companions he greeted courteously by name as they entered. Welcome, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, he said. It is eight and thirty years of the world outside since you came to this land, and those years lie heavy on you. But the end is near, for good or ill. Here lay aside your burden for a while. Welcome, son of Thranduil, too seldom do my kindred journey hither from the north. Welcome, Gimli, son of Glowin. It is long indeed since we saw one of Durin's folk in Cadus Galathon. But today we have broken our long law. May it be a sign that though the world is now dark, better days are at hand, and that friendship shall be renewed between our peoples. Gimli bowed low. When all the guests were seated before his chair, the Lord looked at them again. Here there are eight, he said. Nine were to set out. So said the messages. But maybe there has been some change of counsel that we have not heard. Elrond is far away, and darkness gathers between us, and all this year the shadows have grown longer. Nay, there was no change of counsel, said the Lady Galadriel, speaking for the first time. Her voice was clear and musical, but deeper than a woman's wont. Gandalf the Grey set out with the company, but he did not pass the borders of this land. Now tell us where he is, for I much desire to speak with him again, but I cannot see him from afar unless he comes within the fences of Lothlorien. A grey mist is about him, and the ways of his feet and his mind are hidden from me. Alas, said Aragorn, Gandalf the Grey fell into shadow. He remained in Moria and did not escape. The tension, ah, see, I'm jumping the gun already because I'm describing it as tension and that's not entirely fair. The dynamic, the relationship between Galadriel and Celeborn is fascinating. Throughout, Celeborn is deferred to by literally everyone, including the narrator of the book itself and, of course, by the Lady Galadriel. But there is no question that Galadriel is the greater of the elves of Lothlorien, that she is the greatest of the elves of Lothlorien. In his letters and personal journals, Tolkien has referred more than once to the fact that of all the elves that we meet in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, Galadriel and Glorfindel stand apart. They are the greatest. They are to the other elves as Aragorn is to Barlamund Butterbur. That's the kind of comparison. They are of the oldest blood. They are of the greatest aspect. They are of the Calaquendi. They carry within them the light of Valinor. And this is a powerful and magnificent thing. So even as we're paying attention to Caliborn, even as the company is paying attention to Caliborn, Galadriel is quietly controlling the scene. And she corrects her husband. Nay, there was no change of counsel. Gandalf the Grey set out with the company. So she already knows. Gandalf was with you guys, but he did not pass the borders of this land. Now tell us where he is. So she knows that Gandalf set out, presumably from Elrond's accounts or from her magical elf sense. She knows that he didn't arrive in Lothlorien, but she does not know what happened to him. And hey, let's face it, given Gandalf's propensity for just up and disappearing from a story while it's in motion, it's not perhaps surprising that he should wander off in the middle of this quest. But he's not here, so Aragorn is the one who has to deliver, deliver the news. 
I like that we get the greeting to Aragorn here, who has, of course, as we've discussed before, been to Lothlorien before. We get Legolas, son of Thranduil. That's pretty great, too. Gimli, son of Glowin. And there's a great detail here that I don't know how many times I read this scene before. It, it jumped out at me. It is long indeed since we saw one of Durin's folk in Karas Galathon, but today we have broken our long law. It's not just unfortunate that there were no dwarves here. It's not just, hey, well, things are a little weird right now. What with you guys awakening Durin's Bane beneath the mountain and then the flood of refugees out of Moria and that whole thing. I mean, wow, pretty tough. No, there was a law preventing dwarves from coming to Karas Galathon. That has been overturned. Things are changing in Lothlorien and nothing changes in Lothlorien. Um... Let's see. Oh, we're talking about Arwen here. Uh, Lynette says, Arwen looms like no other in this book. Is she even actually in this book? The movie has me all messed up. Uh, yes, no, uh, she is in Rivendell. We do meet her in Rivendell. You might remember that beat where, uh, I say meet, but you might remember that that beat where we get uh, Frodo looking upon Aragorn and Arwen and uh, Elrond all standing together. And Aragorn looks like he is clad in elven mail. He looks like he is, you know, the returning king. He looks like he is of Numenorean descent. He looks fantastic in that moment. And that's the contrast that we get when he shows up to the Council of Elrond the next day and he's wearing his his travel-stained clothes again. He is now the Ranger Strider, not the the, the Numenorean king, uh, Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Yeah. Yeah, good. Arwen is amazing, says Gildarth Winters. I'm inclined to agree. I really like Aragorn. We get a... a, a, a we really, I really like Aragorn. I really like Arwen. Excuse me. So many R names in this book. Um, so that's uh, Celeborn and Galadriel. That's our introduction. Let's push on to news of Durin's Bane. Then Aragorn recounted all that had happened upon the pass of Carathras and in the days that followed. And he spoke of Balin and his book and the fight in the chamber of Mazarbal and the fire and the narrow bridge and the coming of the terror an evil of the ancient world, it seemed, such as I have never seen before, said Aragorn. It was both a shadow and a flame, strong and terrible. It was a balrog of Morgoth, said Legolas, of all elf banes the most deadly, save the one who sits in the dark tower. Indeed, I saw upon the bridge that which haunts our darkest dreams. I saw Durin's bane, said Gimli in a low voice, and dread was in his eyes. Alas, said Celeborn, we long have feared that under Carathras a terror slept. But had I known that the dwarves had stirred up this evil in Moria again, I would have forbidden you to pass the northern borders, you and all that went with you. And if it were possible, one would say that at the last Gandalf fell from wisdom into folly, going needlessly into the net of Moria. He would be rash indeed that said that thing, said Galadriel gravely. Needless were none of the deeds of Gandalf in life. Those that followed him knew not his mind and cannot report his full purpose. But however it may be with the guide, the followers are blameless. Do not repent of your welcome of the dwarf." If our folk had been exiled long and far from Lothlorien, who of the Galathrim, even Celeborn the Wise, would pass nigh and not wish to look upon their ancient home, though it had become an abode of dragons? Dark is the water of Keled Zaram, and cold are the springs of Kibil Nala, and fair were the many-pillared halls of Khazad Dum in the elder days before the fall of mighty kings beneath the stone. She looked upon Gimli, who sat glowering and sad, and she smiled, and the dwarf hearing the names given in his own ancient tongue, looked up and met her eyes, and it seemed to him that he looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy and saw their love and understanding. Wonder came into his face, and he smiled in answer. He rose clumsily and bowed in dwarf fashion, saying, Yet more fair is the living land of Lorien, and the Lady Galadriel is above all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. Heroes and Bard says the cadence of Galadriel's speech is fascinating. 
to me. And Lynette says, I love when she speaks these names to him. I love this too. This is fantastic. And old Toby's pointing out Galadriel can throw some serious shade, I think. Yes, Galadriel is to Celeborn in this scene as Aragorn was to Boromir in last week's reading. Um, you know, uh, wisdom has left those of Gondor if they speak ill of Lothlorien. You know, it's, it's, or lore has waned in Gondor. Excuse me. Lore has waned in Gondor. Like, Oh, snap, Aragorn. But here we get an even better put down. He would be rash indeed that said that thing, said Galadriel gravely. Needless were none of the deeds of Gandalf in life. And by the way, if we had been long in Exorn, Celeborn the Wise, do you not think that you would want to stop by, even if Lothlorien were now in a boat of dragons? How about you shut up? The grown-ups are talking, is... The rough translation from the uh, from the Cinderin. Yes. Um, Dark is the water of Khaled Zaram, and cold are the springs of Kabil Nala, and fair were the many pillared halls of Khazad-dum in elder days before the fall of mighty kings beneath the stone. This is fantastic, and we see the response in Gimli. Here he has come as an enemy. He has carried, remember, he has been the instigator, or at least the representative of the antipathy between uh, dwarves and elves in the book so far. He is the one who is pushing back. He's the touchy one with Legolas. But here, after being blindfolded and after being condescended to and after being taken into this place that is completely unlike his, his home, his experience of the world, here he is welcomed. And this lady of Lothlorien speaks to him the names of his people, the names of his home in his tongue. You'll note that Celeborn says Moria, which, remember, as we discussed at the time, is the elven term for it because it means dark chasm. That's not how the dwarves refer to it. The dwarves refer to it as Khazad-dum. That is a gesture of enormous respect and seems to be completely genuine from Galadriel, too. This is an act of... Uh, simultaneous condescension in that kingly sense, you know, condescension in the, the truest and most virtuous sense, as we've discussed many times before, particularly with regard to Aragorn, but it also seems to be genuine. She walked there. She knew it. She came from the west of the Misty Mountains to Lothlorien through the halls of Moria. She knew it when it was at its height. So she is speaking of personal experience. This isn't a pat on the head. This isn't, yeah, no, no, but dwarves, dwarves, they're pretty great. No. This is, I was there, and I remember. And that's enormously powerful. And of course, we can't forget that Galadriel and Celeborn took rulership over Lothlorien in the wake of the wakening of Durin's Bane, in the wake of, of the disaster. You know, when, when Amroth and, and Nimrodel fled from Lothlorien, it was because Durin's Bane had awoken beneath the mountain, and the dwarves had fled from Moria. In this dangerous time, they departed from Lothlorien, and Galadriel and to a lesser extent, I guess, Celeborn, stepped up. It's, it's not bad. Um, she's speaking in dwarven poetry, says John in the chat. Perfect. That's exactly what it is, yes. And Becca says, I just want to hear Gimli's inner monologue and the 80s hair metal love song playing in his head. He did just die in her eyes tonight. I mean, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. It must have been something dwarfish, she said. Um, yes. Nikki says this scene actually makes me chuckle a little because of how she su shuts down Celeborn so seamlessly. Yeah, it's, it's pretty perfect. All right, um, good, good. Uh, Nikki asks, I wonder how you slay a Balrog. Um, Balrogs are embodied Maiar, so they can be slain. They can die. And certainly in the Silmarillion, we will see, you know, well... <laughs> 
The problem is that, again, Balrogs were changed by Tolkien as he was moving through his revisions to his Legendarium. At one point, there were, you know, hosts of Balrogs, entire armies of Balrogs, and then he would reduce the number and reduce the number and reduce the number and kind of partially replace them with, with orcs and the men of the East, depending on the circumstance. So the Balrogs became more and more special and thereby more and more powerful. So, you know, they are significant level threats. As, as um, Legolas says on this slide, of all Elfbanes, the most most deadly save the one who sits in the dark tower. Um, this is a baffling line because are you sure Legolas of all the elf banes, the Balrog is second only to Sauron himself because you're going to be facing the Nazgul like pretty soon. And the Nazgul are famous elf banes. The Nazgul are famous, uh, you know, famously bad news for all the mortal races or immortal races, all the children of Iluvatar, all the other residents of Middle-earth. But Legolas seems to be pretty clear here. The Balrog is more powerful than the Witch King of Angmar, even, the most powerful of the Nazgul. And that is striking. Because again, the more that we understand the power of the Balrog, the more we understand A, the power of Gandalf, and B, the consequence of his sacrifice, the consequence of his fall. These are important and weighty issues, and they're, they're very easy to miss, is the thing. This is one of the things that I don't particularly care for um, in the Peter Jackson adaptation. I think the Peter Jackson movie adaptation actually handles the Balrog sequence extremely well, and the, the fly you fools is, is a moment of, of, you know, that is an instant moment of, of classic cinema. That's all you need for, for that moment to, to live forever, is, is Serena McKellen's performance in that moment. And yet, by... Elevating the Balrog and making him more monstrous, we go some way toward actually diminishing the the impact of the threat, I suppose. We'll talk more about that when we get to the movie, yeah. Um, Angela also confirms, maybe Legolas changed his mind after he runs into the ring wraiths. Yes, it could well be. Um, yes, good. Good. Oh, uh, Jackie, yes, Jackie's throwing forward to uh, Arwen's moment with Frodo. Yes, okay. We'll, we'll get to all of that in due course. Um, okay, still a million uh, slides to get to. Let's advance to the next one here. Um, so this is the news of the Fellowship, and then Galadriel gives us a little more history here. Your quest is known to us, said Galadriel, looking at Frodo, but we will not speak of it more openly. Yet not in vain will it prove, maybe, that you came to this land seeking aid as Gandalf himself plainly proposed. Excuse me, plainly purposed. For the Lord of the Galathrim is accounted the wisest of the elves of Middle-earth, and a giver of gifts beyond the power of kings. He has dwelt in the west since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with him years uncounted. For ere the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin I passed over the mountains, and together through ages of the world we have fought the long defeat. I it was who first summoned the White Council, and if my designs had not gone amiss, it would have been governed by Gandalf the Grey, and then mayhap things would have, would have gone otherwise. But even now there is hope left." I will not give you counsel, saying, do this or do that, for not in doing or contriving nor in choosing between this course and another can I avail, but only in knowing what was and is, and in part also what shall be. But this I will say to you, your quest stands upon the edge of a knife, stray but a little and it will fail to the ruin of all, yet hope remains while all the company is true. And with that word she held them with her eyes, and in silence looked searchingly at each of them in turn. None save Legolas and Aragorn could long endure her gaze. Sam blushed quickly and hung his head. At length the Lady Galadriel released them from her eyes, and she smiled. Do not let your hearts be troubled, she said. Tonight you shall sleep in peace. Then they sighed and felt suddenly weary, as though they had been questioned long and deeply, though no words had been spoken openly. 
Go now, said Caliborn. You are worn with sorrow and much toil. Even if your quest did not concern us closely, you should have refuge in this city until you were healed and refreshed. Now you shall rest, and we will not speak of your further road for a while. So a few things. I mean, gosh, so much here to pull out. I am immediately reminded, of course, of Gildor. I am reminded of Frodo's encounter with the elves while still in the Shire. You remember the, the elven party that comes along singing O Elbereth Gilthoniel and drives away the, the Black Rider as he was at the time in our minds. They drive away the Black Rider and in, uh, invite Frodo to come with them. And he and Sam and Mary and, and Pippin, excuse me, Mary's still uh, out in Buckland at that point. They'll go with them and they feast and then they wake up the following morning and it's as though the elves were never there. And Frodo talks to Gildor about advice. And Gildor refuses to give advice and says basically what Galadriel says here, though Galadriel, I think, says it more plainly. I will not give you counsel saying do this or do that, for not in doing or contriving, not in choosing between this course and another can I avail, but only in knowing what was and is, and in part also what shall be. I can't win. I can't help. I can't contribute. I can't find victory for you or for myself in choosing. And I certainly can't choose for you. All I can do is know what was, know what is, and know to some degree what is to come. That is the wisdom of elves. Not in deciding, but in perceiving, in discerning. This is the wisdom of Galadriel. And we're going to talk about her mirror in just a few pages' time, but understanding this, understanding this elven perspective really makes the mirror make a lot more sense because knowledge is power. Knowing what was, is, will be, and how those things are blurred, how those things are are indistinguishable from one another in certain circumstances or interchangeable with one another in certain circumstances. Knowing what is in the truest sense, knowing the song, this reminds me too of, of Elrond's beat back in the Council of Elrond. If I understand aright all that I have heard and we talked at the time and have talked since about, is he referring to, you know, is he speaking metaphorically? Is he referring metaphorically to, you know, the echo of the song, the echo of the Ainulindale? Is he hearing the song of creation, the song of all history that was sung before the world was created? That seems to be what Galadriel is referring to here, too. We also get this reference. Um, well, first off, we get the weird kind of, you know, Galadriel being a weird hype man for Celeborn, I suppose. For the Lord of the Galathrim is accounted the wisest of the elves of Middle-earth and a giver of gifts beyond the power of kings. He has dwelt in the West since the days of dawn, and I've dwelt with him years uncounted. For ere the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin, I passed over the mountains, and together through ages of the world we have fought the long defeat. Fighting the long defeat is perhaps the most eloquent elegant and eloquent. I'm doing, I've got a problem today where I'm just portmanteauing words together, even though I don't intend to. Um, Elegant and eloquent encapsulation of Tolkien's vision of elvendom and of what the elves are and what the elves will ultimately become. It is all a long defeat. And remember, this too echoes what Elrond said. Yes, I was there the first time we threw down evil and it didn't work. It came back. And then I was there at the Battle of the Last Alliance when we threw down evil. And hey, guess what? It didn't stick. Again, evil is always going to return. Evil is always going to come back. And every time it does, we are diminished. The host that will be sent out on this great quest, this great endeavor, the most important quest in the history of Middle-earth, well, we're not going to send the elf lords of old because there are no or very few elf lords of old anymore. We're going to send the fellowship. That's what we've got. That's who they are. That's the best that we can do right now. 
this is the story of diminishment and this is the story of the long defeat um Yes, Heroes and Bard says, Celeborn and Galadriel's relationship is quite uh, quite perplexing. Yes, yes, yes. We're talking too about, uh, there is, uh, John's referring to one of the versions of Galadriel's story here when he says she's humbled from her pride in those days. Yes, that's also true. And Nikki's pointing out the fate of the ring bearer is to be alone. Frodo has to make the important choices regarding the ring on his own in the same way that he chose to be ring bearer and to take on the quest. Yes, this is part of the thing that the elves will not do, right? The elves will not intercede. The elves will not uh, will not directly aid Frodo. That is to say, they will assist him, but they will not make decisions for him. This is still his quest. And we'll notice too that Aragorn generally will will take that line. We're going to have a little bit to talk about next week, I guess, as we wrap up the Fellowship of the Ring. Believe it or not. Um, so we get the sense that that the elves here are still in decline. Though even as she's saying this, Galadriel is speaking with a certain amount of irony. Um, Together through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. For the last thousand years, we've been in Lothlorien, and it's perfect. It's actually perfect. You guys, not a stain lies upon Lothlorien. Nothing bad is here. We are keeping this, this forest completely secure. You know, we've got our elves going out. Three elves are, you know, maybe not quite a match for a hundred orcs, but not bad. And this is a great city. We are clearly one of the great military forces in the world that were never presented that way. That's not ever how the elves of, of Lothlorien are presented to us, but they obviously are. And Lothlorien is static. It is not declining as the other elven civilizations are, the other elven settlements are. But we're not going to talk about it now. Instead, we get this beat of challenge, this beat of test, where Galadriel looks from, from person to person, looking deep into the eyes of each member of the Fellowship. Only Legolas and Aragorn can endure her gaze. And Sam breaks immediately. Sam blushes and looks away immediately. What is she doing? Well, we get a sense of this. They all sighed and felt suddenly weary, as though they had been questioned long and deeply, though no words had been spoken openly. And this is framed, of course. Yet hope remains while all of the company is true. Then we get our silent psychic interrogation. Then she says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Tonight you shall sleep in peace. And suddenly they're all fatigued. There seems to be an element of of magic in that, too. Let's uh, keep pushing on here. Sometime later, when they are in private again, for a little while the travelers talked of their night before in the tre- of their night before in the treetops and of their day's journey and of the lord and lady, for they had not yet the heart to look further back. What did you blush for, Sam? Said Pippin. You soon broke down. Anyone would have thought you had a guilty conscience. I hope it was nothing worse than a wicked plot to steal one of my blankets. I never thought no such thing. Answered Sam in no mood for jest. If you want, no, I. Felt as if I hadn't got nothing on, and I didn't like it. She seemed to be looking inside me and asking me what I would do if she gave me the chance of flying back home, home to the Shire to a nice little hole with, with a bit of garden of my own. That's funny, said Mary. Almost exactly what I felt myself, only, only, well, I don't think I'll say any more. He ended lamely. All of them, it seemed, had fared alike. Each of them had felt he was offered a clear choice between a shadow full of fear that lay ahead and something that he greatly desired. Clear before his mind it lay, and to get it he had only to ser- turn aside from the road and leave the quest and the war against Sauron to others. And it seemed to me, too, said Gimli, that my choice would remain secret and be known only to myself. To me it seemed exceedingly strange, said Boromir. Maybe it was only a test, and she thought to read our thoughts for her own good purpose, but almost I should have said that she was tempting us and offering what she pretended to have the power to give. It need not be said that I refuse to listen. The men of Minas Tirith are true to their word. 
that what he thought that the lady had offered him, Boromir did not tell. And as for Frodo, he would not speak, though Boromir pressed him with questions. She held you long in her gaze, ring-bearer, he said. Yes, said Frodo, but whatever came into my mind, whatever came into my mind then, I will keep there. Well, have a care, said Boromir. I do not feel too sure of this elvish lady and her purposes. Speak no evil of the Lady Galadriel, said Aragorn sternly. You know not what you say. There is in her and in this land no evil unless a man bring it hither himself. Then let him beware. But tonight I shall sleep without fear for the first time since I left Rivendell. And may I sleep deep and forget for a while my grief. I am weary in body and in heart. He cast himself down upon his couch and fell at once into a long sleep. So the test is a subtle one. It is tailored to each individual. It is what your heart desires most, and more than that, your choice will be secret. You don't even have to take action against Frodo. You don't even have to support Sauron. You just have to turn aside from the path. You just have to forswear the oaths that you took, or specifically didn't take, actually, back in in, uh, the House of Elrond. Galadriel's test here speaks to the purity of intent and speaks to the purity of purpose. She wants to confirm, it would seem, that each member of the fellowship is committed to the cause. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, because, I mean, to throw forward just a little bit, obviously we're going to be talking about Boromir next week, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she is testing their, their deeper desires. If she asked Boromir the right question, then she would have felt that he was very committed to the cause, in fact. She would have felt that he was absolutely dedicated to uh, proceeding with their plan. Yeah. Um, Let me catch up with the chat here, which has stopped scrolling again, because sometimes that happens. Good. Um, (laughs) uh, Becca Eller says, Aragorn sticks up for her, and that's awesome. Heroes and Bard says, someone get Aragorn a blanket and some tea. And Jackie says, goodness, Aragorn's got a lot to live up to getting involved with this family of elves. Right. Right. Good. Yeah, he's he's pretty great here. Um, yes, uh, John says the test has been a part of the test. Galadriel has been under since the Elder Days. This is it, right? Galadriel, she knows of Frodo's quest. She knows what this is about. She understands what's happening. She knows what has been brought in. And again, we get veiled reference to it here. Speak no evil of the Lady Galadriel, says Aragorn sternly. You know not what you say. There is in her and in this land no evil unless a man brings it hither himself. Aragorn, like we just did this. You were just telling Boromir that there is no evil in Lothlorien save that which we bring in with us, while forgetting that you are carrying the most evil artifact in history. There is a real dramatic irony here from Aragorn. The audience is absolutely aware that, yes, they are carrying a great evil. A man bring it hither himself. Then let him beware, he says. But let us all beware, for we have brought a great evil and a great temptation into... uh, into Galadriel's presence here. Let's move on to uh, Frodo's song as we are reclining here in Lothlorien. Um, later, I think it's going to be in next week's reading. Um, no, gosh, I think it's actually later than that. But at some point in the near future, we're going to look back on the time that we spent in uh, in Lothlorien. And Sam is going to say, well, I remember three nights clearly. So definitely three nights, maybe four, maybe five at a push, 
Turns out that the Fellowship stays in Lothlorien for an entire calendar month. Time passes strangely in Lothlorien. They arrive in January 17th of uh, 2019 of the Third Age, and they stay to February the 16th. So, so an entire month, but a day. That is how long they stay in Lothlorien. Beware, as Kristen Ann says in the chat, perfectly. Beware the land of fairy. Absolutely. Yes. Good. And as Heroes and Bards continues, in the realm of Fae, time has little meaning. It absolutely does. And particularly in the the doubly timeless realm of Lothlorien. So this is Frodo's song for Gandalf. When evening in the Shire was grey, his footsteps on the hill were heard. Before the dawn he went away on journey long without a word, from wilderland to western shore, from northern waste to southern hill, through dragon lair and hidden door. And darkling woods he walked at will, with dwarf and hobbit, elves and men, with mortal and immortal folk, with bird on bough and beast in den, in their own secret tongues he spoke, a deadly sword, a healing hand, a back that bent beneath its load, a trumpet voice, a burning brand, a weary pilgrim on the road, a lord of wisdom throned he sat, swift in anger, quick to laugh, an old man in a battered hat, who leaned upon a thorny staff. He stood upon the bridge alone, and fire and shadow both defied. His staff was broken on the stone. In Khazad-dum, his wisdom died. I don't have time, unfortunately, to delve too deeply into this poem, but we can call out a few things. We can call out, of course, through dragon lair and hidden door and darkling woods he walked at will with dwarf and hobbit, elves and men. Interestingly, dwarf and hobbit in the singular there, elves and men in the plural. I like that quite a lot. Uh, but here we see the the mystery of Gandalf, that he would just up and disappear, that he would he would be gone. When evening in the Shire was gray, his footsteps on the hill were heard. Before the dawn, he went away on journey long without a word. So we hear him coming to the Shire. When uh, evening in the Shire was gray, we hear him coming. Here he is. He's, he's shown up. Gandalf, this is great. Before the dawn, he went away on journey long without a word. From Wilderland to Western Shore, from Northern Waste to Southern Hill, just traversing the entirety of the map. And I'm thinking immediately of those maps that, that Frodo had in his... Uh, in his study back home that Bilbo had in his study back home, you know, where his favorite walks were marked in red ink and beyond the bounds of the Shire, there was just white. And now I think how much of the world Frodo has seen. He's seen the maps, of course, back in Rivendell, but he's also experienced it. He has seen things that even Bilbo himself couldn't experience. And he is, as he grows in his understanding of the world, growing in his understanding of Gandalf. He's seeing more of the world that was beneath the boots of this great wizard. With mortal and immortal folk, with bird on bow and beast on den, in their own secret tongues he spoke, a deadly sword, a healing hand, a back that bent beneath its load. We're getting greater and greater emphasis on those things that make Gandalf stand out. A trumpet voice, a burning brand, a weary pilgrim on the road, a lord of wisdom throned, he sat swift in anger, quick to laugh. An old man in a battered hat who leaned upon a thorny staff. We go up and up and up. We elevate again and again and again. And then, as is so often the case in Tolkien's poetry, we bring it right back down to the personal, to the intimate. A lord of wisdom throned he sat, swift in anger, quick to laugh. An old man in a battered hat who leaned upon a thorny staff. He stood upon the bridge alone and fire and shadow, capital F, capital S, and fire and shadow both defied. His staff was broken on the stone. In Khazad-dum, his wisdom died. 
It's spectacular and is made all the more spectacular by Sam's addition. Why, you'll be beating Mr. Bilbo next, said Sam. No, I'm afraid not, said Frodo. But that is the best I can do yet. Well, Mr. Frodo, if you do have another go, I hope you'll say a word about his fireworks, said Sam. Something like this. The finest rockets ever seen, they burst in stars of blue and green, and after thunder, golden showers come falling like a rain of flowers. Though that doesn't do them justice by a long road. Sam stepping up and offering, contributing his poetic voice to Frodo's poetic voice, and doing so apparently without any kind of, of I don't know, self-consciousness. He, his, his poetry doesn't do justice to Gandalf's fireworks because Gandalf's fireworks are spectacular. But here is Sam contributing to Frodo's poem right after comparing Frodo's poem to Bilbo's poem. You'll be beating Mr. Bilbo next. I mean, not now, obviously. Bilbo's amazing. Did you hear Arendelle was a mariner? It's pretty special. But that, that poem was solid. That was a good, solid Hobbit poem, by the way. And then he's contributing along too. Sam too, is seeing more and more of the world. And as he sees more of the world, he understands more of the world and of himself. He is being moved to poetry more and more frequently here. Yes. Bilbo's little poet apprentices make me so happy, says Danielle in the chat. Yes, that's exactly it. Perfect. Uh, Alan says, I get that Gandalf's adventures were important at all, but leaving without saying goodbye to your friends is a little rude. That's fair, though. Can you imagine saying goodbye to hobbits? Um, I mean, it would take the better part of a day, right? How do you how do you extricate yourself from, from that? Oh, well, of course, you're going to go. Great. Uh, are your bags packed? Let me make some tea while you're packing your bags. Uh, and then, of course, we'll have it outside. It's a beautiful morning. Oh, and I do have some little seed cakes. And then, obviously, we'll blow some smoke rings. And uh, maybe I can show you the few mathems that I have left around the house that I haven't sent off to the matham house just yet. No, look, it's lunchtime. Well, you can't leave on an empty stomach. Here, we'll have lunch. Well, now, of course, it's too late in the day for you to leave. So you should probably stay for tea and then get an early start tomorrow morning. Pinky swear. I kind of feel that, that, you know, extricating yourself from from uh, from a hobbit house would be like trying to get out of your parents' house, you know, at Thanksgiving, just trying to extricate yourself from those those interminable fa- family gatherings, which are not unwelcome, but are still very long nonetheless. I kind of feel like that would be inevitable. So leaving at dawn without a word, maybe Gandalf's best bet there, yes. Um, yes, saying goodbye to hobbits is like saying goodbye to Canadians, says Gildarts Winters. Takes all damn day. Hobbits have Minnesotan goodbyes, says Kristen. I was just thinking of... Of, uh, just thinking of Minnesotan goodbyes. Yes, perfect. Perfect. All right. So that's Sam's poem. Let's talk now about Sam's vision. So he and Frodo are talking and they apparently find the Lady Galadriel. She, or she comes to them having said that she summoned them forth because she wants to, to share the visions contained within her mirror. Sam climbed up on the foot of the pedestal and leaned over the basin. The water looked hard and dark. Stars were reflected in it. There's only stars as I thought, he said. Then he gave a low gasp, for the stars went out. As if a dark veil had been withdrawn, the mirror grew grew grey and then clear. There was sun shining, and the branches of trees were waving and tossing in the wind. But before Sam could make up his mind what it was, he saw the light faded, and now he thought he saw Frodo with a pale face lying fast asleep under a great dark cliff. Then he seemed to see himself going along a dim passage and climbing an endless winding stair. It came to him suddenly that he was looking urgently for something, but what it was he did not know. Like a dream the vision shifted and went back, and he saw the trees again. But this time they were not so close, and he could see what was going on. They were not waving in the wind, they were falling, crashing to the ground. 
Hi, said Sam in an outraged voice. There's that Ted Sandyman a cutting down trees as he shouldn't. They didn't ought to be felled. It's the, that avenue beyond the mill that shades the road to Bywater. I wish I could get it, Ted, and I fell him. But now Sam noticed that the old mill had vanished, and a large red brick building was being put up where it stood. Lots of folk were busily at work. There was a tall red chimney nearby. Black smoke seemed to cloud the surface of the mirror. There's some devilry at work in the shire, he said. That one knew what he was about when he wanted to send Mr. Mary back. Then suddenly Sam gave a cry and sprang away. I can't stay here, he said wildly. I must go home. They've dug up Bagshot Row, and there's my poor old gaffer going down the hill with his bits of things on a barrow. I must go home. Sam seeing, I mean, because we'll talk about it when we get to it, and because it makes no difference to the, the movement of the plot right now, Sam is given a vision of the future. Sam is being given two visions of the future, in fact. And it's interesting that he sees them in this order. It's interesting first that he sees Frodo, vulnerable. Then he sees himself running up this, this winding, endless stair, searching desperately for something, though he doesn't know what, and then back to the Shire, which is what he said he wanted. He says to Galadriel right before this passage that he wants a glimpse of the Shire to see how things are going back home, and he gets that. But it isn't the Shire that he left. It's Ted Sandyman, cutting down the trees as he shouldn't. They didn't ought to be felled. It's that avenue beyond the mill that shades the road to Bywater. I wish I could get it, Ted, and I'd fell him. The felling of the trees that shade the road to Bywater, we have at this point arguably never seen Sam, seen Sam this incensed. He is awfully, awfully upset at this point because he's seeing devastation. He's seeing the rumination of the Shire, not just... The, the details, not just the transitory incidents of the Shire, but the, the fabric of the Shire itself, the landscape of the Shire is being destroyed. And of course, as a gardener too, we know I kind of skipped over the, the incredibly sweet detail of Sam being offered by the Lady Galadriel, anything you want if you just turn away from this path, this path that will lead you into darkness and shadow, anything you want. And he thinks of, well, I could have a little bit of a garden that's just my very own. That's Sam Ganji right there. Um, so here we get this vision and he immediately wants to, to run. He immediately wants to race back to the Shire. Uh, I must go home. There's the poor old gaffer going down the hill with his bits of things on a barrow. The gaffer has been kicked out of his home, presumably by the Sackville Bagginses. Remember we discussed at the time how, how his, uh, his cottage was presumably some kind of pension cottage from, from Bilba, from, from the Baggins estate, I suppose, from his time working at Bag End, that he was kept in good order, as was the right thing to do, given the, the circumstances, even though he wasn't, you know, so much working at Bag End anymore. And now it seems he's been turned out. Now it seems he's going down the hill with his bits of things on a barrow. This is a dark day for the Shire. It's a dark day for Sam Gamgee, and he wants to go home immediately. But of course, he can't. Then we get Frodo's uh, vision. I will look, said Frodo, and he climbed on the pedestal and bent over the dark water. And once the mirror cleared and he saw a twilight land. Mountains loomed dark in the distance against a pale sky. A long grey road wound back out of sight. Far away a figure came slowly down the road, faint and small at first, but growing larger and clearer as it approached. Suddenly Frodo realized that it reminded him of Gandalf. He almost called aloud the wizard's name, and then he saw that the figure was clothed not in grey, but in white, in a white that shone faintly in the dusk, and in, his, in its hand there was a white staff. The head was so bad that he could see no face, and presently the figure turned aside round a bend in the road and went out of the mirror's view. Doubt came into Frodo's mind. Was this a vision of Gandalf on one of his many lonely journeys long ago, or was it Saruman? 
The vision now changed. Brief and small but very vivid, he caught a glimpse of Bilbo walking restlessly about his room. The table was littered with disordered papers. Rain was beating on the windows. Then there was a pause, and after it many swift scenes followed that Frodo in some way knew to be parts of a great history in which he had become involved. The mist cleared, and he saw a sight which he had never seen before but knew at once. The sea. Darkness fell. The sea rose and raged in a great storm. Then he saw again the sun sinking blood red into a rack of clouds, the black outline of a tall ship with torn sails riding up out of the west, then a wide river flowing through a populous city, then a white fortress with seven towers, then again a ship with black sails, and now it was morning again, and the water rippled with light, and a banner bearing the emblem of a white tree shone in the sun. A smoke as of fire and battle arose, and again the sun went down on a burning red that faded into a grey mist, and into the mist a small ship passed away, twinkling with lights. It vanished, and Frodo sighed and prepared to draw away. But suddenly the mirror went altogether dark, as dark as if a hole had opened in the world of sight, and Frodo looked into emptiness. In the black abyss there appeared a single eye that slowly grew until it filled nearly all the mirror. So terrible was it that Frodo stood, rooted, unable to cry out or to withdraw his gaze. The eye was rimmed with fire, but was itself glazed, yellow as a cat's, watchful and intent, and the black slit of its pupil opened on a pit, a window, into nothing. Then the eye began to rove, searching this way and that, and Frodo knew with certainty and horror that among the many things that it sought he himself was one. But he also knew that it could not see him, not yet, not unless he willed it. The ring that hung upon its chain around his neck grew heavy, heavier than a great stone, and his head was dragged downwards. The mirror seemed to be growing hot, and curls of steam were rising from the water. He was slipping forward. Elizabeth's calling out, Black Sails! In the chat here. True, technically, Black Sails, lots of ships. We get, uh, we can probably do some decompression on, on Frodo's vision here, but since it is past, present, and future, we're probably going to limit ourselves to talking about this right at the end of the book. Um, yes, yes. Tolkien really hated cats. Ah, nobody's perfect, says Danielle. Yes, he, he really did hate cats. Like, cats were always, uh, were always, uh, symbols of great evil. In fact, literally symbols of great evil in earlier versions of his, uh, of his uh, legendarium. John saying, Frodo sees the ship of Elendil, the glory of the might of Gondor, its renewal with return of the king, and then his own final journey. Yes. The the uh, ship that is driven out. Uh, darkness fell. The sea rose and raged in a great storm. Then he, he saw again the sun sinking blood ran into a rack of clouds. The black outline of a tall ship with torn sails riding up out of the west. This is the coming of Elendil. This is this is the, the coming of the Numenorians. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Okay. Let's... Um, good. Good. Let's... Uh, Move on to Galadriel here. Gosh, I am never going to make it through both chapters tonight, you guys. This was foolishly ambitious. I know not what it was that you last saw, she said. For the, uh, sorry, I know what it was that you last saw, she said, for that is also in my mind. Do not be afraid, but do not think that only by singing amid the trees, nor even by the slender arrows of Alvin Bowes, is this land of Lothlorien maintained and defended against its enemy. I say to you, Frodo, that even as I speak to you, I perceive the Dark Lord and know his mind or all of his mind that concerns the elves. And he gropes ever to see me and my thought, but still the door is closed. She lifted up her white arms and spread out her hands toward the east in a gesture of rejection and denial. Erendel, the evening star most beloved of the elves, shone clear above. So bright was it that the figure of the elven lady cast a dim shadow on the ground. Its rays glanced upon a ring about her finger. It glittered like polished gold overlaid with silver light, and a white stone in it twinkled as if the even star had come down to rest upon her hand. 
Frodo gazed at the ring with awe, for suddenly it seemed to him that he understood. Yes, she said, divining his thought. It is not permitted to speak of it, and Erwan could not do so, but it cannot be hidden from the ring-bearer, and one who has seen the eye. Verily, it is in the land of Lorien, upon the finger of Galadriel, that one of the three remains. This is Nenya, the ring of adamant, and I am its keeper. He suspects, but he does not know. Not yet. Do you not see now wherefore you are coming to us is as the footstep of doom? For if you fail, then we are laid bare to the enemy. Yet if you succeed, then our power is diminished, and Lothlorien will fade, and the tides of time will sweep it away. We must depart into the west, or dwindle to a rustic folk of dell and cave, slowly to forget and be forgotten. We talked in the last session about why it is that elves must diminish. Why is it taken as read that they will falter and fail? And we talked about part of Tolkien's kind of core conceit here, that he is supposed to be telling a story of his world. This is the deep antiquity of our real world, and there are no elves in our real world, or there are, let's say, few elves, if any, remain in our real world. Therefore, necessarily, they must diminish. They must become less than they were. But I mentioned at the time that we also get a few insights into how that works mechanically here in in the frame of the Lord of the Rings, and this is Galadriel laying it right out. Okay, Frodo, you're going up against Sauron. If you fail, we're sunk. That's it. We're done. Because if you fail, A, he is going to get the ring. That's going to be real bad for everyone. B, our presence here is going to be revealed. It is necessarily going to be revealed. That's going to be really bad for all the elves of Lothlorien. There is no place that we can hide from the war that is coming. But even if you succeed, the destruction of the One Ring will drain the power of Nenya. Galadriel is no longer going to be able to preserve Lothlorien. Time will pass here again, and they will fade. They will diminish. The long defeat will continue. This is what Galadriel is facing. This is what all the elves are facing. She knows this to be true, but Elrond also, by implication, knows this to be true. Gandalf, by implication, knows this to be true. That even if Frodo is successful, this age, the third age of the world, is coming to a necessary end. Frodo bent his head. And what do you wish, he said at last, that what should be shall be, she answered, The love of their elves for their land and their works is deeper than the deeps of the sea, and their regret is undying and cannot ever wholly be assuaged. Yet they will cast all away rather than submit to Sauron, for they know him now. For the fate of Lothlorien you are not answerable, but only for the doing of your own task. Yet I could wish, were it of any avail, that the one ring had never been wrought, or had remained forever lost." You are wise and fearless and fair, Lady Galadriel, said Frodo. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. It is too great a matter for me. Galadriel laughed with a sudden, clear laugh. Wise the Lady Galadriel may be, she said, yet here she has met her match in courtesy. Gently are you revenged for my testing of your heart at our first meeting. You begin to see with a keen eye. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years I had pondered what I might do should the great ring come into my hands, and behold, it was brought within my grasp. The evil that was devised long ago works on in many ways, whether Sauron himself stands or falls. Would not that have been a noble deed to set to the credit of his ring if I had taken it by force or fear from my guests? And now at last it comes. 
you will give me the ring freely. In place of the Dark Lord, you will set up a queen, and I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. She lifted up her hand, and from the ring that she wore there issued a great light that illuminated her alone and left all else dark. She stood before Frodo, seeming now tall beyond measurement, and beautiful beyond enduring, terrible and worshipful. Then she let her hand fall, and the light faded, and suddenly she laughed again, and lo, she was shrunken, a slender elf woman clad in simple white, whose gentle voice was soft and sad. I pass the test, she said. I will diminish, and go into the west, and remain Galadriel. This is uh, pretty much my favorite passage from The Fellowship of the Ring. This is way, way up there for my favorite passage in the entire book. This is breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking, and not just breathtaking in its prose, in the way that it is constructed, with its poetical arrangement here. You will give me the ring freely. In praise of a dark lord, you will set up a queen, and I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. That is as good as anything that Tolkien ever wrote for my money. But it's so much more than that. Because Galadriel here who has tested the fellowship. Galadriel here who has tested again, specifically tested again, Sam and Frodo. And that is certainly one interpretation of her appearing with the mirror, that this is a further test. For some reason, some foreknowledge of the future, she has picked out Frodo and Sam specifically and is making sure that they are resolute on their path here too. And she knows how the ring will work. And she has long thought of the ring. She has long wanted the ring and thought about what she could do with it, the good that she could do with it. She could absolutely tear down Sauron. Gandalf said the same thing. Elrond intimated the same thing. Of course, they could take the ring, they could use the ring, but then they would replace the Dark Lord. But Galadriel is different because she would not be a Dark Lord, but a Dark Lady. And she would not rule through fear she would be loved, but it would be a despairing love. It would be a tragic love. It would be a love of oppression and compulsion. It would be the dark perversion of all that she represents here in Lothlorien with Caliborn. This is breathtaking. And the way that she lays it all out here, why is the Lady Galadriel may be, yet here she has met her matching courtesy. Gently are you revenged for my testing of your heart on our first meeting. You begin to see with a keen eye. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. Yeah, I've thought about taking the ring. And the ring itself is evil, whether Sauron holds it or not, whether Sauron exists or not. The ring itself is evil. Yes, evil has been born here even unto the heart of Lothlorien, Aragorn, by the way. Maybe you can stop lampshading that now. That would be great. And wouldn't it be appropriate if you, the ring bearer, carried the ring into Lothlorien and I took it from you by force or by fear? Wouldn't that be a perfectly evil act that would, that would honor the ring itself? But I don't even have to do that because now you're offering it to me. Now I can take it as I tempted you, 
as I told you that you can have everything that you want and that no one would ever know the choice that you made, well, now here we are. I don't even have to cross the line. I don't even have to take it from you. I, can, I, I don't have to take it by force. You will yield it to me, and then I will have the ring, and I can tell anyone who asks, no, no, Frodo gave it up to me. He did it willingly. I didn't do anything wrong. This is the burden that I choose to bear, and I will be a dark lady. It's perfect. And it's perfect because in the end, as we get this, this vivid representation, this great light that illumined her and left all earth, all else dark, excuse me, she stood before Frodo seeming now tall beyond measurement, beautiful beyond enduring, terrible and worshipful. Here we see how virtue can be taken so far, that, that, that beauty can be taken so far that it becomes painful, that it becomes abrasive and, and dangerous. Here she is in that moment. But then she lets her hand fall. And she laughs because she's passed the test. And the alternative to seizing the one ring and becoming the dark lady? To diminish, to go into the West, and to remain Galadriel. And there are details in the Legendarium, basically, that, that because of the rebellion of the Noldor, because of, of deep, deep elements, basically the reason that Galadriel is here is because this was her test. This is the test that she has been facing for thousands of years. This is the challenge that she has been overcoming for thousands of years. And in her creation of this perfect facade of Lothlorien, in her preservation of Lorien of old here in Middle-earth on the banks of the Anduin, in her, her enforced stainless perfection of Lothlorien, there is a sense, there is an argument in which she is losing. She is, she is failing that test. But now presented with the virtue of Frodo and Sam, she can't fail the test. So she will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. In one of the most heartbreaking lines in the entire book, it's just astonishing. Um, yes, Dark Willow with the One Ring, says Gildart's Winters here. <laughs> yeah, even more dangerous than Dark Willow. Yes, absolutely. Um, Yes, Noah says, elves may be cursed to endure forever on earth, but at least they have a paradise in Valinor. They do, they do. Um, I mean, the, the tragedy of the elves is that that's all that they have. You know, they are of the world, so Valinor is about as good as it's ever going to get. They're not going to know the, you know, literally heavenly perfection that the, the men are going to, to own. But yes, yeah. Um, good, good. I'm scrolling back here. There's, there's so much smartness in the chat here tonight. Good. Um, yes, Noah says, it seems like Frodo was offering it to her so that he won't have the burden anymore. Seems more like giving up. I love this interpretation. I've thought long and hard about this because I don't know what to make of Galadriel's line there. You are wise and fearless and fair, Lady Galadriel, said Frodo. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. It is too great a matter for me. And she responds with a laugh. Wise the Lady Galadriel may be, yet here she has met her match in courtesy. Gently are you revenged for my testing of your heart at our first meeting. She laughs it off. No, no, Frodo. Very good, Frodo. Okay, I see your game. Very smart, pretending to offer me the ring. But isn't he offering her the ring? Isn't this Frodo at, its weak, at his weakest, having just seen this vision of, of the past and the future and who knows what, having been so worn out, still grief-stricken, still heart-sick from the loss of Gandalf? Is he playing with her? Or does he mean this sincerely? I find it very difficult to read this as Frodo being, being tricky with her. I, I read absolute sincerity from Frodo 
here. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that he would pass up the ring to her at this point. Um, you guys, it is 20 after 10, and we are only just now wrapping up our first uh, our first chapter of this evening's reading. So I think we're going to roll up. I only have five slides for next week's reading, so I think uh, for the next chapter. So I think what we'll probably do is roll that up with next week's reading and just do some kind of epic length, get us to the end of, of the Fellowship of the Ring. But we have one more slide to look at tonight, and it is this. I would ask one thing before we go, said Frodo, a thing which I often meant to ask Gandalf in Rivendell. I am permitted to wear the one ring. Why cannot I see all the others and know the thoughts of those that wear them? You have not tried, she said. Only thrice have you set the ring upon your finger since you knew what you possessed. Do not try. It would destroy you. Did not Gandalf tell you that the rings give power according to the measure of each possessor? Before you could use that power, you would need to become far stronger and to train your will to the domination of others. Yet even so, as ring-bearer and as one that has borne it on, on finger and seen that which is hidden, your sight has grown keener. You have perceived my thought more clearly than many that are accounted wise. You saw the eye of him that holds the seven and the nine. And did you not see and recognize the ring upon my finger? Did you see my ring? she asked, turning again to Sam. No, lady, he answered. To tell you the truth, I wondered what you were talking about. I saw a star through your fingers, but you'll pardon my speaking out. I think my master was right. I wish you'd take his ring. You'd put things to rights. You'd stop them digging up the gaffer and turning him adrift. You'd make some folk pay for their dirty work. I would, she said. That is how it would begin. But it would not stop with that, alas. We will not speak more of it. Let us go. So the one ring is much more powerful than Frodo's simple invisibility ring. We should say here, only thrice have you set the ring upon your finger since you knew what you possessed. Let's uh, do this. Since we're now in Crowdcast and there's very little uh, interaction delay, let's have a quick competition. Can you guys name the three times that Frodo has worn the ring? Go. First person to name all three times gets, I don't know, digital points, digital stars, something. Um, <laughs> what are the three times that Frodo has worn the ring since he knew what it was? Um but obviously here, she is emphasizing Frodo's relative lack of strength. And this comes to us from, from Gandalf all the way back in the very second chapter of this entire book, you know, when he's calling out what it is that makes Frodo special. No, it's not because you're heroic. It's not because you're great in stature. It's because you're neither of those things. That doesn't mean that you're not good. It doesn't mean that you're not important. But here she takes that further. Yeah, you could be great in stature. You could be possessive of an awesome power, but don't. Don't be tempted by that. Don't train with the ring. Don't practice your strength. Don't get stronger, because if you do, the ring will become more powerful. It will exert even more domination over you, and you will be all the more dangerous yourself. Um, good. Danielle calls it out here. I think Danielle's the first person to say all three of them. Weathertop, Bree, and Bombadil. Yes. So technically, he only put the ring on twice, with Tom Bombadil, and then at Weathertop. In Bree, it slips onto his finger. Yes. This also, by the way, is an interesting point of speculation, which had genuinely never occurred to me before today. Like, I had never had this thought before, but it, it's been bothering me today. Because I was thinking about that moment when Frodo offers Galadriel the ring and his motivation for doing so. And is he just exhausted? Well, yes, I, I believe that he is just exhausted. But there is one other explanation there. Is it the ring? Is the ring acting on Frodo, asking him to surrender it, asking him to give it up? Here it is with Galadriel, who also wears one of the three. Like, she would be a powerhouse unlike any the world had ever seen. She would be incredibly powerful. Maybe the ring is influencing Frodo in that moment to 
give it up to offer it and in that case I'm, I'm again you know odd points of comparison between the works of tolkien and the works of jk rowling uh but of course we've been discussing prisoner of azkaban over on our tuesday night dear mr potter sessions and i keep thinking of that laugh that galadriel gives when uh, frodo offers the ring she laughs and then makes a joke out of it and it feels to me like professor lupin and the ridiculous charm you know it's the it's the charm to kind of counteract the fear of the boggart First of all, before we can resist something, we have to be able to laugh at it. We have to drain its power from it. And Galadriel does that. And that's all the more powerful if the ring is motivating Frodo to ask in in some way to, to give up the ring. Yeah. Um, good, good. Yeah, a few people, a few people kind of uh, uh, calling out the three times there. That's excellent. Good. Yes, so Rayla Lynn thinks that the ring is sizing her up and wants her. John says the ring would love to go to a, per a person of power. Uh, Alan says, I like the ring pushing Frodo to offer it to her. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yes. Back to laughter in the divine again, says John. Yes. Right? That's that's incredibly powerful. You're, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that connection. But of course, that does tie back to uh, to Bombadil. That ties back to, you know, the, the hobbits being liberated from the Barrow Downs. And what does Tom Bombadil tell them to do? Go and run on the grass. Go naked and run on the grass and laugh and, and, and be in the world. Be kind of connected to this purity of experience, which of course is emblematic. That's a particular instantiation right there of this kind of more general idea of joy and laughter and song as being not just life affirming but but of life itself you know of of goodness itself you know the tralala lolly elves have very strong opinions about that and you'll remember that when bilbo runs into them he is though he is exhausted though he has been starving for days though he is absolutely worn down to the last of his strength he is tempted to stay up all night and listen to the elves sing because that is the magical power of their restoration Okay, let's uh, wrap this up here with this by uh, returning to this final slide. Uh, so Sam doesn't see the ring. Sam is is ignorant of, of what has occurred here, but still he sees the power of the ring. To tell you the truth, I wondered what you were talking about. I saw a star through your fingers, which would have been Arendelle. That would have been the, the, the Silmaril, you know, kind of shining down from the heavens through her fingers or between her fingers. But if you'll pardon my speaking out, I think the master is right. I wish you'd take his ring. You'd put things to rights. You'd stop them digging up the gaffer and turning him adrift. You'd make some folk pay for their dirty work. I would, she said, that is how it would begin. A moment of absolute self-awareness from Galadriel, echoing a moment of absolute self-awareness that we've had from Gandalf much earlier in the book. Yes, yes, I absolutely would do that. You're completely right, Sam Gamgee. I would take that ring. I would punish everyone who needed punishing. I would destroy all the evil in the world. And then things would go really badly. Then things would be much, much worse. This is the, the threat of the ring. And we're framing this, of course, very carefully now because it is going to be directly relevant within the course of the next couple of chapters. Um, let's call it quits there then. Um, gosh, I really wanted to get to Galadriel's song. Um, okay, here's what we'll do. Let's do two more slides and then we'll close on Galadriel's song. We'll kind of close the book on Galadriel this week. We'll, we'll talk about the gifts that she gives to the fellowship at the beginning of next week's session. Let's do two more slides. The first comes to us from the beginning of chapter eight. Uh, farewell to Lorien. A month has passed, you guys. A month has passed and now we're ready to leave Lorien because you know how the fellowship just loves hanging out and spending a long time at places. Um, this uh, is our first kind of major interaction in the new chapter. I shall go to Minas Tirith alone if need be, for it is my duty, said Boromir. And after that he was silent for a while, sitting with his eyes fixed on Frodo, as if he was trying to read the halfling's thoughts. 
At length he spoke again, softly, as if he was debating with himself. "'If you wish only to destroy the ring,' he said, "'then there is little use in war and weapons, and the men of Minas Tirith cannot help. "'But if you wish to destroy the armed might of the Dark Lord, "'then it is folly to go with that force into his domain, and folly to throw away—' "'He paused suddenly, as if he had become aware that he was speaking his thoughts aloud. "'It would be folly to throw lives away, I mean,' he ended. It is a choice between defending a strong place and walking openly into the arms of death. At least, that is how I see it. Frodo caught something new and strange in Boromir's glance, and he looked hard at him. Plainly, Boromir's thought was different from his final words. It would be folly to throw away... what? The Ring of Power? He had said something like this at the council, but then he had accepted the correction of Elrond. Frodo looked at Aragorn, but he seemed deep in his own thought and made no sign that he had heeded Boromir's words. And so their debate ended. Mary and Pippin were already asleep, and Sam was nodding. The night was growing old. So hot on the heels of Galadriel rejecting the temptation of the ring, absolutely acknowledging, yes, you're right, I could take that ring and I could kick some ass, let me tell you. Boromir here is feeling that tug. He's feeling that temptation, as he has been, as Frodo acknowledges here, from the Council of Elrond from that moment onward. And then, after Galadriel's testing, he is the one that is suspicious of Frodo. What do you have planned? What are you thinking about doing with the ring? And Frodo rejects it. He's suspicious of Galadriel because Galadriel is powerful. And now, he's thinking more concrete thoughts. It would be folly to throw away... He paused suddenly, as if he had become aware he was speaking his thoughts aloud. It would be folly to throw lives away. I mean, he ended... It is a choice between defending a strong place and walking openly into the arms of death. At least that is how I see it. The ring is having its effect. The ring is whispering there, yes. The night grows old. Time is moving again, observes Danielle. Yes, exactly right. Good. Good. Okay. So let's move on then to our final slide of this evening. This is Galadriel's song. This is the song that she sings as we are really getting ready to leave. This is our final moment here. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Of wind I sang, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. Beyond the sun, beyond the moon, the foam was on the sea. And by the strand of Ilmarin there grew a golden tree. Beneath the stars of ever eve in Eldamar it shone. In Eldamar, beside the walls of Elven Tyrion. There long the golden leaves have grown upon the branching years. While here, beyond the sundering seas, now fall the elven tears. O oh, Lorian, the winter comes, the bare and leafless day. The leaves are falling in the stream, the river flows away. O oh, Lorian, too long have I dwelt upon this hither shore, and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. But if of ships I now should sing, what ship would come to me? What ship would bear me ever back across so wide a sea? Galadriel has passed her test. She has resisted temptation. And now she has to think of the future, whatever that future means. But however she is to be diminished, however Lothlorien will fall and fall it will, she has to confront the future. And we see here her echoing kind of nostalgically, almost, the creation of Lothlorien in the first place. I sang of leaves of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. 
these trees do not grow in Middle-earth. They grow in Valinor, and they grow on Tol Arisea, and they grew on Numenor, but they do not grow anywhere in Middle-earth, except in Lothlorien, except through the power of the ring that Galadriel wears. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. This is the, the history here. Of wind I sang, a wind there came, and in the branches blew beyond the sun. Beyond the moon, the foam was on the sea, and by the strand of Ilmarin there grew a golden tree. So we've got two lines here about Lothlorien, about her act of creation, her act of recreation here. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Of wind, of wind I sang, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. I created these things. I did this. I sang these songs. I made this happen. But why did I do these things? Because beyond the sun, beyond the moon, the foam was on the sea. We move back here to the tree, to Evereve, to Eldemar, to, to Tyrion. There long the golden leaves have grown upon its branching years. While here, beyond the sundering seas, now fall the elven tears. So there, the world is still perfect. I created the perfect world here. I created an echo of the perfect world here because I couldn't be there. I'm in Middle-earth. I'm not allowed to go back in many versions of the Legendarium. I'm not allowed to go back to Valinor at this point. So I created my version of Valinor here, and I have preserved it for a thousand years, but now it is going to fall. Here beyond the sundering seas now fall the elven tears. Old Horian, the winter comes, the bare and leafless day. The leaves are falling in the stream. The river flows away. The river there, obviously a, a metaphor for the passage of time and for the, for the movement of, of you know, the future here. Old Lorien, too long have I dwelt upon this hither shore and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. She now realizes what she's done. She's been here and in her fading crown. She's wound the little, the little golden flowers that she created. Remember back in uh, Cirith Amroth, uh, when, when Frodo was looking at, we described the Eleanor flowers, the tiny little, uh, tiny little golden flowers. So she's wound those flowers in her crown, but her crown itself is fading and has been fading. She's been in denial of that fact. She's been preserving this sacred place, but not building anything new and not finding a home. And now all of this is done. It doesn't matter now what happens to Frodo. It doesn't matter now what happens to the ring. I mean, it matters, but not if your, your single soul metric is, will Lothlorien survive? The answer is no, no matter what. So now she's thinking of the West again. But if of ships I now should sing, what ship would come to me? What ship would bear me ever back across so wide a sea? For all the things that I have done, for all the years that I have spent, for all the energy that I have put into preserving this, this echo of Valinor, this echo of Lorien of old, now if I change my mind, if I decide that I want ships, if I sing of ships, if I try and make ships happen, if I try and voyage back across the ocean, if I take the straight road to Valinor, what ship would come for me? This is Galadriel's fate and future that she's wrestling with now. She has passed her test, yes, but in the passing of the test and the dissolution of a thousand years of stagnation, a thousand years of, of perfect perfection, you know, a thousand years of preserved perfection, those things have fallen away. And she is now feeling the long defeat. She is now feeling the diminishment of the elves. She has to go, but can she go? Is that even possible for her? Well, we'll 
circle back around to Gladriel in the near future. Is there no happy elven poem, asks Nikki? Uh, no, that's really not. That's not what elves do. You, you go to hobbits for happy poems. You go to, to hobbits for, you know, walking songs and bath time songs and that kind of thing. You go to dwarves for epic historical poems that often come with a little bit of fortitude right there at the end. Elves sing of sadness. But of course, elves should sing of sadness because that is from that is the thing from which beauty is derived. Remember, just in last week's reading, we're exhausted. We've come down out of Moria and Gandalf is dead and we're being hunted and everything is terrible. And Legolas says, hey, wait, I know this river. Let me tell you the story of the woman it was named for, the woman who went missing in the mountains or the woman who died in its watery depths. Let me just tell you that. Uh, let me sing you that song. And then I'll recount it in, in, in Westron, in, in the common speech anyway, because I just don't want you to miss any of the really tragic details about what happened. Yeah, that's what the elves do. And in that beauty, there is tragedy. And in that tragedy, in that sadness, in that grief and in that pain, there is virtue, restoration, hope. That is where the goodness of elves arises. And that is a great note upon which to conclude tonight's uh, session. Gosh, I've covered many, many slides. I still have three more to go. But as I say, we'll wrap those up next time when we talk about the gifts that uh, the Lady Galadriel, excuse me, the Lady Galadriel gives to the Fellowship. It has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, before I go, let me show you the uh, slide for next week. I guess I should do that too, right? Um, next week, then, we are going to wrap up the... Fellowship of the Ring, believe it or not. We're going to finish up the rest of this chapter, and then we're going to push on to talk about chapters 9 and 10 of Book 2 of the Fellowship of the Ring, The Great River, and the ominously titled The Breaking of the Fellowship. We will do so at 10 p.m. Eastern Thursday, September 28th, 2017. That is next Thursday night, believe it or not. Believe it or not, we're almost at the end of September already. Wow, how the nights are drawing in and how the temperature isn't dropping at all, at least here in Oklahoma City. Uh, hopefully it's going to be cold one of these nights. That's going to be really nice. Maybe one night I'll be able to, I don't know, light a fire after I'm done here and, and kind of lean into that Tolkienian spirit, lean into that spirit of, of hobbitry and hobbitness. Uh, guys, thank you so, so much for joining me here. I hope that you've enjoyed using the Crowdcast platform. I'm just realizing now that I've invited you to ask questions and you're, uh, you have questions here. I really can't. I have a hard out and I'm 10 minutes over time already, but maybe we'll do some questions next week. And if we don't, after we conclude the Fellowship of the Ring next week, we're going to take a whole week just to do some Q&A and to do some housekeeping, I guess, to go back through the Fellowship of the Ring, to look at the way that certain things are foreshadowed and constructed there, to look at the way that certain threads are closed off so that we can move into the second part of the story, and the way that certain, certain threads are suspended so that we can bring them back into the second part of the story. So that'll be a big uh, Q&A session and we can do that live. That'll be a lot of fun. So that's the week after next. Uh, we'll have some time there before we move into the Two Towers. I can't believe we're a third done with... Uh, with the Lord of the Rings already. It's been a fantastic journey and there's a lot more to come. You guys, thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, take care. Bye.